Man, it's a real privilege to be here. I, I love you guys, and it's, uh, you're receptive, and, and you're here, you're eager to hear from God's Word, so uh, if I mess this up, it's, it's because I messed it up, because you guys are here to listen, and what a privilege. And while you guys are kind of getting settled, you heard Casey pray that God speaks the book of Hosea, so if you have your Bibles, turn to Hosea, and that's one of those books that you don't be ashamed to use the table of contents because it's in what is called the white pages of the Bible, the pages that are not marked up. So, I finally have this opportunity that has made me very excited and kind of uh, uh, confused. I get to take my wife to go see a movie. It's been a while since I've gotten to do that, because we have three kids. We have a five-year-old, almost a two-year-old, Almost a six, almost a two, and an eight-month-old. So we have two in diapers, Lincoln, Charlie, and Lucy. Charlie and Lucy are the ones in diapers. And when Lucy showed up, wonderful surprise, everything just kind of like went chaotic. And we've been uh, just going 100 miles an hour, and until uh, two of my favorite people showed up into our lives... uh, you know, Maddie and Kristen. We have some two really great babysitters, and we can, we can go out on dates again. But what's happened is, like, and, and by the way, now that we have three kids, I, like, get tired at 8.30. So going to see a movie, it would have to start at, like, 4.30, and I smack my gums and everything. So, so I, I, I get online to start looking at, like, what movies are available. And I used to be right there with you, Kristen Hines, that I knew every movie that was out and what to go see and all that. I went to movies.com completely ignorant of what's out there. Because we, we fast forward all the commercials and I have no idea. So I see movies like Chappie. Uh, the, I see the trailers and it looks like an E.T. I don't know. Have you, anybody seen Chappie? Is it good? I don't know. Do you know what I'm talking about? Chappie? All right. All right. I don't know. I'm just up here talking. Um, you know, there's movies like Insurgent. I, maybe that's good, but I didn't see divergent or subvergent, um, I, and I feel like I'm too old for it. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's great. I liked Hunger Games. I guess it's the same. I don't know. Um, Run All Night. There's movies like with Liam Neeson or, you know, that I want my wife to still love me at the end of the day. So we settle on Fifty Shades of Grey. Kidding. I'm kidding. Um, no, but it, it, it's always going to land back at those safe, like, romantic comedies, you know? I, I don't know anything about accidental love. That might be a great one. Anybody? I don't know. I just know that those are great date movies because the guy typically goes reluctantly but still enjoys it, you know? Am I right? I, I, you know, I, I go there, it's like, this is going to be boring. And then halfway through, I'm like, oh, this is delightful. <laughs> yeah. And I just, and I think that like everybody kind of likes those romantic comedies or those romances. I mean, if, even if it's like, you know, The Notebook, I secretly kind of enjoyed it. Um, I liked Titanic. Uh, and we all want to be in those movies, except for Titanic at the end. Um, we all want to be one of the main characters in a romance, don't we? I mean, that's what, I think that's what makes it, it pulls us in. We want to be, you know, like, uh, there's that, you're beautiful and you don't even know it, and I'm going to pursue you, or that guy's pursuing me. And we want to be wrapped up in that whole unfolding drama, and it's, it's delightful. It's something that we want to be in 
a great love story. But here's the thing is, we're in a great love story. We are in the most amazing love story. And you know, like, oh, the preacher's going to this. It's God loves you. Uh, Yeah. Wonderful. I know that. We are underwhelmed by the fact that we are in the greatest love story that you could possibly imagine. It's kind of a ho-hum given. God loves you. I'm loved by God. I'm in a great love story. And the thing is, I think it's universal for us to be underwhelmed by the greatest news ever. God knows that. And so he gives us a story that conveys the story that we're in. And it's seen in the book of Hosea. I'm not going to say that Hosea is the greatest love story, but I will say it is the story of the greatest love. Hosea is not, it doesn't read like your favorite, you know, romantic comedy necessarily, but it is, it's not the greatest love story when it comes to just enjoyment, but it is the story of the greatest love. And what I want to do is I want to summarize the first three chapters of it with, with the hope that it recaptures our hearts and our imagination with the amazing love story that we're in. Am I making that noise? It's my beard. I'm sorry. What do I do? Oh, okay. Yeah. I, by the way, it keeps on like those little hairs, man. Why did God put hair on our face? Like, or shave. I'll, let me hold on a second. I'm going to shave. So I want to summarize chapters 1 through 3, just you know, touch on certain things. But I want to look at what it meant to Hosea then, what this story meant then, and then also take a look at what it means to us today. So Hosea chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1, 1 through 3 to start. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by, by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. Hosea is a prophet in like 700 to 800 years before Jesus came, that's 755 to 715 B.C. He's a prophet speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel, because back then it was the divided kingdom. It was like as if, if the Civil War, if the South had won, you got no longer the United States. You'd have two countries. Israel, same thing happens. Judah in the south, Israel in the north. And Hosea is commissioned to speak to the north, to the to Israelites in the north, And it's in the south, in Judah, where true worship was preserved, because that's where Jerusalem was. God had given his instructions to every at every Passover, go back to Jerusalem and worship worship me there. And when Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, what he did is he was afraid people from his country would go down to Judah every year and remember what it means to really worship God. And they would become loyal to the south again. So he ended up setting up these different altars in the north and he redefined God and redefined worship so that people would have their own identity as Israelites. And so they basically they made God in their own image in order to maintain their identity. And so Hosea is speaking to these Israelites 
who are essentially unfaithful in their worship. And not only are they unfaithful, they're, they're, they're prospering. They're comfortable. These people, they're, they're, they, they're spiritually complacent because they think everything's going fine while they're worshiping God in, in their own making. And so Hosea is called to proclaim truths to a spiritually complacent people. And God's strategy here is not to say, go talk. He's going to say, no, Hosea, go show them my message. I don't want you just to proclaim the message I have to my people through you. I want you to show them the message I have for my people. I'm going to go a step further, Hosea. I want you to experience the message I have for them. And so what he tells them to do is to go meet woo and win and marry a girl named Gomer. Now, if I were Hosea, I'd tap out right there. You want me to marry a girl named Gomer? Uh, I mean, if it's like Match.com, you got this instant message from a girl named Gomer. You're like, oh. Now, I'm, if you are a visitor here and your name is Gomer, I, I'm really sorry. I, I'm not one of the regular speakers, okay? My, Okay. Gomer had a past, despite her name. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'll stop with that. Gomer had a past. And the thing is, this is what I think. I think Hosea probably was, in his mind, was thinking, that's painful. Because if he's a prophet, I'm going to take the bet that he has kept himself pure. He's ready to give his you know, his purity to this woman, and then he finds out, well, she's already given it away a number of times. And that's painful, but it's surmountable. I know tons of people who, you know, like, there's unfaithful, you know, there's, there's been, that's been given away, and there's, that, that can be healed, that can be overcome, and it does get overcome. But I would imagine Hosea's perspective was, this is, This is tough. Her past wasn't very good, but since God is bringing us together, our future will be different. Her heart will be changed and the future will be bright. Unfortunately, that's not the case. The names of the kids that they have tell a story. You know, names back in biblical times, they usually meant something. Uh, They, side note, Lucy, our our daughter, her name means light. Uh, that was intentional. Charlie means man, or free man. There's a number of things, but man is really that. Lincoln means colony by the lake. Isn't that great? That's meaningful to us. But um, <laughs> that was really a free side note. The names in the Bible, they, they represent often the character of the person, but in this case, there is a message there's a double message happening. God is speaking a message through the names of the kids. It's part of this illustration, but it's also a message of what's going on in the family. Because verse 4, and I'm not going to read every verse here, but verse 4, the Lord said to him, name the first child you have, call him Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. The first child's name is named after a city that plays a tragic role in the history of Israel. It would be like naming, to a Jew, it would be like naming a kid Auschwitz. I mean, whoa, that is a slap in the face uh, picture of something that is 
reminding of a past tragedy, and it's calling a future judgment. Now, I imagine that caused some tension in the marriage. Let's name him Jezreel. I'm the, I'm the man. I'm making this decision. You know, that is going to be uh, contentious. And now, the next child they have is Lo Ruwama, which means no mercy or no pity, because I will not show pity to my people anymore. It's like that's the message. And then the last child is Lo Ami, which means not my people. When your third child's name is not mine, you get the hints of adultery happening in the marriage. Every like, scholar pretty much agrees that this third child is most likely not, Hosea is not the father. And whatever the cause of that drift in their marriage, it could have been Hosea was a workaholic and, you know, just he was, maybe she thought he was too religiously zealous and just, just a little stranger out there, but they drifted, whatever the cause, and it could have just been, he was, maybe he was great, and Gomer just, uh, she was just attracted to her old lifestyle, but she wanders, is unfaithful, and as that verse says in ver, uh, verse 2, you have children of, uh, children of whoredom. I mean, this is, this is adultery. Hosea, though, doesn't divorce. He, sticks, he stays with her. He's faithful. But Gomer still leaves him. Chapter 2, by verse 5, you see that she has wandered away. Look at chapter 2, verse 5. It says, For their mother has played the whore. She has conceived them, has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. I mean, maybe she's staying out late every night. Hosea comes home, and, and eventually there's just a note on the fridge, and it says, I'm done. You take care of the kids. And she goes after her lovers. And, and she goes from lover to lover. And then you see in verse, verse 7, she goes lower and lower. Because it says, She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. So she not only is being pursued by other men, she gets to the place where she's pursuing other men unsuccessfully. She's going, getting, it's just getting lower and lower. And I'm sure that when she left, she thought she was leaving for the better life. I'm sure she thought, this is, I'm done with this. This is miserable. Uh, it's, I'm sure it's chaotic with three kids. I can speak to that. I mean, it's chaotic, but she, I, don't even, I don't even feel close and on the same page with my husband. I'm out of here. I'm going for the good life. And yet, you see someone just going from lover to lover and just sinking lower and lower. And I can only imagine the gossip that Hosea overheard. Ah, oh, the prophet's wife left him. It serves him right. He's so busy telling everybody else how to live, but he can't even manage his own house. Hosea is being obedient to God, pursuing and faithfully pursuing this woman. And I'm sure he was not the perfect husband, but despite his faithfulness, she, she runs away and really drags, I think, the whole family through the mud. And I can't imagine tucking in those kids at night. Where's mommy? I, well, trying to explain that. This is, this, the heart of Hose, what's going on in Hosea, it breaks my heart. But Gomer thinks she's living the life for a season. And that's exactly what sin does, doesn't it? You initially think that you're experiencing life, but you need to move on and keep on. You need to work harder and harder to experience that life. And it drags you down more and more. 
then eventually you find that you, you know, if you've ever seen behind the music on VH1, you wake up in a gutter, you know, and it's, that's the direction this, this leads, or you die. I mean, there's, there's a low point, and Gomer has her gutter experience here in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It says, verse 1 of chapter 3, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an, is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to, to other gods and love cakes of raisins, aphrodisiacs. Verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. All right, verse 2 reveals that Gomer is being sold as a slave. She's gone from lover to lover, and now she's being spit out and being, she's being trafficked. She's, she's being sold. That is Gomer's gutter. And this is what's amazing. This is pretty much the universal, you know, experience. And the, 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 when you're being sold as a slave in, in biblical times, in these days, everybody agrees that they're probably stripped naked. They're standing up there so that the people who are auctioning here can see what they're buying. So I picture Gomer, self-respect gone, you know, just she's at the bottom. And she is probably shielding her, closing her eyes because that's the only shield she can have. She can put between her and all the people. So she's squeezing her eyes shut and she begins to hear people saying, you know, uh, 12 shekels, you know. And then she hears the voice of her husband, 13 shekels. 13, 14 shekels. And it gets up to 15 shekels. And it's down to, and I, I believe Hosea runs out of money because he doesn't pay with just money. He ends up paying with some barley. What you see in verse 8, chapter 2, is that Hosea is the one who's been paying for Gomer's food and clothing. And she thinks it's her lovers who are paying. Hosea's in the background still providing for her. And I think he's probably going broke. And he spends his last cent buying Gomer back. And, and people are probably thinking, man, that's a high price to pay for, for revenge. But he is not buying her back to abuse her. He's buying her back to love her, to redeem her. Hosea doesn't love Gomer because of who she is. He loves her despite who she is. This is not a different degree of love that we see in romantic comedies. This isn't a different degree of love that we see around us. This is a different kind of love. This is what the Bible calls hesed. Unfailing love. Faithful, unbreakable, industrial strength love that it is, it's, it's perfectly, there, there's nothing that can, that can even bend it. It is true. And it pursues the beloved. And the, the, the message here, it's, it's obvious. We're, we're Gomer. God is Hosea. We are Gomer. I want to I, I draw out some lessons for us today. And it's all over the place. I can't be exhaustive. But I, here's one thing. And it might be obvious, but it deserves being spelled out. I think God wants us to see that our relationship with him is like a marriage. Our relationship with God is like a marriage. It is to God. It needs to be to us. You know, 
verse 1 of chapter 3, that what he's saying is, just as you, Hosea, are married, so am I. I'm married to my people. And I don't think of God as my husband. There's an obvious reason. I don't really like the idea of thinking of God as my husband. I, but there is, my natural way of thinking of God is, he's my savior, he's my shepherd, he's my king, he's my father. And those are all true and right. But there isn't uh, a closeness and an intimacy. It misses an intimacy that the image of husband and that a spouse has. Getting past the I can't think of him as my husband thing, if you look at what a marriage is, a marriage is a relationship of intimacy. Meaning, there is nobody who knows me like my wife. There is nobody who knows me like my wife. She knows me better than I know myself, honestly. She sees stuff about me that I don't see about myself, and I will often be very resistant to hearing it for a while. But there's other things, good things that she sees that I don't see in myself either. But, but it can happen like at the end of a talk. Someone comes up and says, Ryan, great job or whatever. And it means a lot. But if Brandy says it to me, it means a lot. The flip can happen too. The flip has happened where she sees that I'm being fake or something. And I fool. I could fool you. I can't fool her. She knows me in a way that nobody else does. There's something about the intimacy of a marriage that God wants to get through to us that you can't know God from afar. You can't know God in a formal way. The only way to know God is intimately. He wants into every nook and cranny of your heart. He is not regulated to a Sunday or to a Wednesday night or to your small group. He wants in and he knows you and he wants you to know him. Marriage is a relationship of intimacy. Marriage is also a relationship of priority and power. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's the priority when I say this because your marriage can be good. It could be, I mean, if it's like, if you're in a good season where your relationship is strong, everything else could be going to crap. And you're fine. You're fine. I mean, like, Brandy and I are good right now. We've been, it's been, especially this last month, it's been wonderful. And I've had some of the most challenging stuff happen to me lately, and I'm so thankful because I'm fine. It's not, it's not really phasing me. The flip has happened Going two months back, Brandy and I were arguing like never before, just at each other. And it was just kind of like, dude, I mean, someone's going to hurt each other here, you know? Not really, but it, it felt like that. We were just at each other, and everything else was going pretty good. But I felt like a zombie, just kind of like doing this through life. And internally, the, there's a priority to that relationship because if your relationship with God is not going well, everything else can be going wonderfully. Just internally, you feel empty. You feel unsatisfied. You feel conflicted. Your conscience is bugging you. But if your relationship with God is strong, it really doesn't matter what else is going on. He's good. You know what I mean? Not only that, there's a power in, that relation, in a marriage relationship that no other relationship has because your spouse can heal or destroy you. I mean, your self-worth can be... Everybody can think you're ugly, but if your spouse finds you beautiful, you're beautiful. 
And the flip is true. Everybody can think you're wonderful, but if your spouse sees through you, they have a power to speak and to, to, to kind of define you in a way. Not the ultimate power. Now here's what's interesting about this is, how many of you heard the phrase, when you're content being single, that's when, that's when you're ready to meet somebody? How many of you hate that? It's, it's kind of like a cruel statement because it's like, you know, yeah, chase your own tail. You know, like, you, you never really get there. And I hated that. I, you know, I met Brandon when I was 29, so I had that, you know, long, that season. And, and every time I saw my dad, you dating anybody? You're like, no, dad, stop asking. Um, and, but that, that you know, just be content. And then you'll meet someone. Then you're ready. I hate that. I hate that statement. But there's a truth in it. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because, the, the, because it rubs us wrong, because there's a truth in there. Because you cannot get your self-worth from the person you're dating. You cannot get your self-worth and your value from your spouse. That's a burden your spouse can't bear. That was a burden meant for God to bear. Your worth does not come from any human being, spouse or not. Spouse is the closest you get to it, but your worth comes from your identity and your joy in Christ. And I, do, I wouldn't want to throw out the truth in there. There is something that changes in you when you find your joy in Christ that you become more attractive. You won't need something from the person you're dating and scare them away. Because that's what happens when you really have no joy in Christ. Is you begin to go like... Oh, if you meet somebody who is worth dating, then chances are, if their joy is where it belongs, chances are they're going to sense the lack of joy and the burden being placed on them. It is first priority to find your joy, your self-worth, and your identity in Him. That's the priority and the power of this husband-wife relationship. God wants to be that priority. He wants to be that power. He wants to be that intimacy in your life. Here's the great news. The, the one who knows you the best loves you the most. I mean, as you draw closer to him, you are more freed. You are more set free. And our relationship with him is supposed to be like a marriage. It is like a marriage. It is a marriage. We are one with Christ. We're united to him. Here's the other thing, though. Our relationship, what Hosea and Gomer teach us, is our relationship with God is a, is a bad marriage because of us, because of our sin. Our, because our relationship with God is like a marriage, our sin is very personal to him. I'll put it that way. Our sin is very personal to God. You know, when a sheep wanders from a shepherd, it doesn't stab the shepherd's heart. When a king, one of his subjects, you know, is, dis, is disloyal to his kingship, it doesn't, it doesn't keep the king up at night. Even, a, even when one of my kids is disobedient to me, it doesn't rattle me the same way that unfaithfulness from your spouse does. God has made himself profoundly vulnerable to us. He has given us his heart. He has bound up his joy in our joy, and he has given his love and affection to us. And I can't imagine the sovereign king of the universe caring about me like that. But being a dad of three has given me a glimpse into how that could be true. Um, and I know I'm mixing my metaphors. Like a marriage, now I'm like a dad here. But I had this realization this weekend that 
legitimately all three of my kids are my favorite. I mean, like, the one that I'm thinking about is my favorite. The one that I'm with is my favorite. Like, Charlie is so freaking adorable. I love the kid. Oh, but Lincoln, I just, he is so fun. I just, I can spend all this time with Lucy. Oh my gosh, my heart melts. And I feel this affection for each one of them that's, that is intimate. And it's like, yeah, you're my favorite. No, you're my favorite. You're constant. And if I can do that as a sinful person, as a dad, I believe that God can have that kind of intimate, passionate love for us. And then we go and drag that love through the mud when our heart beats fast, not for him, but it beats fast for pornography or beats fast for that relationship we know we're not supposed to be in or it beats fast for being right and, you know, or gossiping or whatever it might be. But we chase after other spouses, other people, other things, but not him. He's the one who's supposed to get our heart pounding. You know, we are in the greatest love story imaginable. But if, it, if this were a romantic comedy, the dude would have left us. He would have moved on. But the best news of all this, and the main message of Hosea, is that his love is absolutely faithful. He is faithful in his love. There is nothing that we can do to separate us from his unfailing love. I don't believe it until I go back to the scriptures and read about it again, until I look back at the cross and see, you know, that's how sinful I was, that's how sinful I am, and that's how much I'm loved, simultaneously. When Hosea is redeeming his, his wayward wife with every cent that he, you know, he, a great sacrifice, great cost to himself, he redeems her. She wandered pretty far. I've wandered pretty far. But he has redeemed me at infinite cost to himself the cost of the blood of his son. I'm bought at a price. I'm not my own. The message of Hosea is, you know, yeah, good news. You're more sinful than you think. And you're more loved than you would ever imagine. That love changes you. Because you are loved like Gomer, it really, it changes you and you can begin to love like Hosea. This is a story. He doesn't give us some propositions. He shows us how we are loved. And Hosea is only a shadow of how we are loved in Christ. My challenge to you is get involved in this, this romance. He, he's worth the pursuing because he has pursued us and we're safe in him. And if you don't know him, the way to know him is through Jesus Christ. He's the one who's bought you back. You don't have to jump through hoops. You say, I trust in you, Jesus I cannot save myself. I'm too sinful. I trust in you. And you're in. Let, let me pray. And I just want to apply this and let's keep on worshiping. That's the only appropriate response. Father, I love the privilege of getting to read this book and study and, and, and take it in and the way it has just softened my heart to think about your unfailing love. And to know that I'm the most sinful person I know, and yet you've loved me um, in ways I, I, I don't even I can't even begin to wrap my mind around. My prayer is that everybody here, their hearts are recaptured by a love that they may be familiar with. I pray that we would be uh, amazed by your unfailing love, 
And would you help us to drink deep from, from that truth so that we fall more deeply in love with you and so we spend less time running away from you. I love you, Lord. I thank you so much for, for the gift of your son. And I pray, uh, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.